Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio, the world headquarters of Common Sense. We've been elevated, yes. It used to just be the home of Common Sense, and that's the world headquarters. So there, uh, we are greeted this morning by an entire catalogue of failure that we are supposed to be surprised about, right? And as ever, I'll be setting out the stall here at the Independent Republic with the truth about what it all really means. Apparently, the first proper inquiry into the COVID crisis has come up with several major problems. One, care home residents died needlessly and the elderly were just an afterthought. Two, Thousands of deaths could have been prevented. Three, the test and trace system was nothing short of useless and chaotic. And four, ministers were blinded by groupthink amongst the scientific advisers. In short, all the things that we said here for months at Talk Radio uh, that have now turned out to be true. Is anybody really surprised by this? Meanwhile, we are now being told the tax rate on our incomes to pay for social care, which kicks in next April, isn't going to be enough to pay for anything other than the NHS and its short-term problems. Will knock me down with a feather. Now the Institute for Fiscal Studies says more taxes will have to be brought in. Marvellous, isn't it? And from his luxury villa in Marbella, which probably doesn't need much heating at the moment, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has declared he's going to bail out energy-intensive industries with state loans. That's more taxpayers' money to me and you because the price of energy is apparently going through the roof. Nobody can do anything about it. 03444991000. Help us navigate our way through all this. I'm joined this morning by John Rental, the Chief Political Commentator at The Independent. We'll get his take on everything that's going on. Uh, we'll find out what he thought of conference season as well. And where we will go from here. Laura Dodsworth is here as well with news that COVID is now no longer the most serious threat to health, just as parents have been put under yet more pressure to get their children vaccinated in order that they can stay in school. Apparently that's a big thing now. Uh, not many of them are taking up the offer, though, and I wonder why. Kevin O'Sullivan is here as well, ahead of his appearance later on today, judging Plank of the Week. I'll be asking him about a new school rule in Loughborough that has outlawed using the terms good and bad uh, when it comes to children's behaviour. They prefer um, skillful and unskillful, which apparently is Buddhist. I think that's worse, isn't it? Anyway, Donna Harvey's here from California as well. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course... Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 
Time to say a very good morning to Mr. John Rental. Welcome, John. Good morning. I must say I've been uh, very much... Well, sorry, in... a skilful morning to you. Skillful, thank you very much indeed. And let's hope that none of us over the course of the next three hours are unskillful <laughs> in any way. I mean, it is remarkable, isn't it, the way this language is being kind of changed and altered. And I know it's supposed to evolve, but I mean, it's indeed. not supposed to not describe the thing that it's describing. You wouldn't have thought so, but... It's very uh, weird, isn't it? Uh, that, th- this, is, this is going beyond um, calling people chairs and... Yes. Uh, things like that it really is and and it's it's disturbing actually i mean british airways yesterday outlawing the terms ladies and gentlemen and deciding to refer to that was the that was the one i was thinking of yes yeah, this, well, I, I think that's fine you can you can start an announcement by saying hello everyone i mean that's yeah but uh, that's, that's not what they're problem. going to say i think they're not going to say everyone they're going to start calling them guests or something ridiculous <laughs> i mean i mean i don't mind if it's improving it but what's wrong with ladies and gentlemen i mean how offend, who's offended by that uh, nobody. Exactly, exactly. Anyway, we'll come on to all of that later. We'll also come on to your um, uh, television programme, which is rather good. We were just talking about it with Julia there, the uh, Blair and Brown thing. Because Peter Hitchens was talking about it um, on Monday. I don't know Everybody's heard him. talking about it. It's very gratifying. Yes, he's, he, he's got some criticisms, as you might not be surprised to know, which we'll get to. I imagine those are criticisms of uh, of New Labour rather than of the programme. Well, he says that the, it's, it's a very interesting programme if you're interested in personalities, but it right. doesn't really tell you what they did or yes, what they no, no, well, that, which, that which is, is true. That is fair because it has to be built around that central relationship between Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. And it was, is, and it the, was a fascinating relationship. Yeah, absolutely. in the same way that you can look now, for example, at um, Boris Johnson and his relationships within the cabinet because um, there's nothing really like the Blair and Brown relationship it seems to me anyway. Well, no, because because uh, the Blair and Brown relationship was a sort of like a duopoly that yes. uh, that dominated politics for those thirteen years, whereas whereas Boris Johnson is much more. Um, solitary. Um, yes. He has he has these bilateral relationships with one person at a time. Like Dominic Cummings was very important for a bit. Yes. And then uh, Rishi Sunak became uh, became very important. Uh, unintended. And then unintended. Matt Hancock was very close for a while, wasn't Indeed. he? Indeed. And Michael Gove as well. I mean, I don't know what can't quite work. I mean, I suppose the closest thing to Blair and Brown that we've got is Gove and, and Boris. Oh, well, I don't think so because because I don't think Boris Johnson trusts Michael Gove at all. I don't think Tony Blair trusted Gordon Brown. Well, no, 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 that is that is also <laughs> true. But I don't think Tony Tony. Tony Blair knew that, well, he, he sort of, I think he had the measure of Gordon Brown. He mm. knew that he wouldn't challenge him right. um, as long as he was kept uh, kept at arm's length. Yes, I mean, but again, fascinating <laughs> stuff. We'll come back to that. Let's talk, first of all, though, about the big stories of the morning, which are, of course, based around this big COVID report which has come out. Um, yeah. Some people, and I include um, Julia Harley Brewer on this, uh, are saying that well, it's rather rich of Jeremy Hunt to come out and start being very critical when he was actually part of much of the preparation uh, for what should have been the preparedness for a pandemic. Well, that's one. Of, yeah. Well, one of the criticisms that I think is justified is the is the lack of preparedness, the, yeah. uh, the and the lack of PPE, which was. I mean, you could have. I think. I mean. I mean, I can't can't say that many people did, but you could have predicted that. Uh, that PPE would be needed if there was if there was going to be a pandemic, um, and Jeremy Hunt was the health secretary who was in charge uh, in in the crucial period when when those stockpiles were supposed to be yes. being prepared. I mean, is it fair though to say that nobody really knew what was coming and nobody well, really understood how bad it was going to be? Because I remember um, talking to one of the former Tory MPs who defected Lib Dems and then lost at the election. I can't remember his name, Doctor Lee, I think it was. Oh yes, um, Philip Lee. Philip yeah. Lee, and he said, "Well, you know, we should have bought all these ventilators. We yeah, knew that. Exactly. We knew that the the, the 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 practice run that we had done said that we should do that. And of course, it turned out it the turned ventilators out we didn't need ventilators. Weren't, that's weren't the, useful. But that's the other criticism: is that the government failed to adjust its plan uh, to the unexpected uh, nature of the, of the disease it actually faced. Yes. and so you can't have it both ways. I mean. 
you know, you can't prepare for something if you don't know what it is. Yes. Um, although you can to a certain extent, yes. and, and, and the government did. Well, I mean, but... rather, there was a fantastic um, uh, comment in, uh, in, one of your, in one of the shows that I was watching last night, one of the episodes of the Blair Brown thing, where he said, well, we, were, we did have a plan and we prepared the plan very well, but it was the wrong plan. <laughs> yeah, and absolutely. I mean, in a way, you, you, that's in, kind of in, what happened here. In relation to Iraq, yes. I mean, yeah. they, they expected Iraq to be a humanitarian catastrophe and instead it was a, a, a vicious sectarian uh, civil war. So, yes, uh, obviously, you know, everybody's got a plan until they get hit in the face by reality. Yes. So, I mean, to read, for example, that the elderly was seen as an afterthought, no doubt at all, um, the, 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 the idea of sending them out of hospitals back to care homes where many of them died was a bad well, idea, and it was said to be a bad idea at the time, but they did it anyway. Well, yeah, but it was a very difficult idea because the, the problem was that, they, that people were focused on, on hospitals mm. and, the, and the problem of hospitals being, being overwhelmed. So it, obviously there was a tension between wanting to, wanting to get people out of hospital to clear, the, to clear capacity for, 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 for a wave of mm. new But doesn't that prove patients? that that was the wrong plan then? To worry about hospitals being overwhelmed was wrong because well, what they actually created by moving everybody out of the hospital was more people dying. Well, I think you know we're all we're all brilliant analysts of of what went wrong in hindsight, um, and I think I mean, the wonderful thing about this report, of course, is it confirms uh, you know what absolutely everybody uh, thought in the first place was right. Um, you know, I mean, I think it's very difficult to say uh, that there were. I mean, there were so, there were some decisions that possibly you know should have been taken differently and mm. and and it should have been obvious at the time that they were going to be taken differently everybody focuses far too much i'm in in my view on the fact that the the lockdown could have come you know a week or 10 days earlier uh, in fact i mean the crucial thing that happened was that people changed their behavior anyway they started working from home um you know a week a week or 10 days before the lockdown was ordered and that was what actually stopped um stopped the infection spreading yes except it didn't did it because the infection did spread and the infection well, spread no, faster peaked. than everybody knew no but the peak of infections was 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 march the 23rd which mm. is when the lockdown was was announced right. and the reason that was the peak was because people had already stopped going to work uh, a week or 10 days before yeah but i mean it's always going to be difficult to see if that's actually true well, and if yes. that's the case because i certainly didn't stop going to work and i remember having my last drink in a pub across the way here um and thinking oh well i suppose we can manage this for three weeks which yeah. is what we all thought was happening <laughs> yeah, uh, but i'm still going to be coming to work every day you know and an awful lot of people still did and i mean when we talk about the lockdown as such i think it should be remembered that an awful lot of people were still out working and plenty of people, OK, yes, the office staff in most parts of, of Britain didn't go into work anymore. Yeah. But there were plenty of cars on the road. There were plenty of well, delivery no, there were. drivers. They're, they're already stopped. The car, the traffic. Had, no, listen, had, I, had gone. I was people, driving. People, people were off the tube. Then the tubes were quiet, but there was a lot of traffic. Yes. Well, because but, I was in it every day. Yeah, I can well, tell you that. But, but traffic's fun. In, in, in an infection control terms, traffic's all right because people are in their enclosed little bubbles. Yes, yes, so. but they're all going somewhere. Yeah, that's my that point. That's true. But yeah. I mean, an awful lot of people weren't going anywhere. I mean, your, your anecdote, uh, you know, I've got my anecdote. I stopped going to work on the day Nadine Doris um, was uh, went down with, uh, yes. with with coronavirus. I thought, right, well, I won't I won't go into Westminster yes. because I know, remember being in Westminster uh, in the tent of shame and um, interviewing Andrew Bridget. And the next day he declared, I remember shaking hands with him as he got up and left. And he next day he declared he had COVID. And I went, oh, <laughs> well, great. But I'm luckily, I mean, unfortunately, I've never, I've, I got away with it. I've never, I've never actually had it. But I guess that must have been quite close to the final lockdown day. Yeah. I can't remember why we would be there, but it must have been something to do with 
post Brexit, I suppose, or I don't know. I don't think I don't think it was February because I think it would have been later than that. Yeah. No. Well, but anyway, I mean, but this report essentially tells us what we already know, and in, in that sense, it's it's very useful to to the Prime Minister, I yes. think, because it sort of preempts an awful lot of what is going to be in the official uh, public inquiry. Um, and it but, also sets out this group think, which we all were critical of, certainly here at Talk Radio, by Sage and by a lot of the scientific advisers, yeah. um, who clearly were giving one, you know, yes. we've already heard Dominic Cummings' version of events, which was that actually yeah. even the scientific advisers didn't want to lock down. Yeah. Um, and Boris went against their advice yes, initially. Well, it, it took, obviously, it took time for people to adjust to the, the nature of the, uh, of the disease. It took, and, it, and it probably took too long. I mean, mm. There's no question about that. But I do think we're only talking about a period of, of, of a week to 10 days. I mean, you know, Dominic Cummings' evidence is, is, is really all we need to know. Mm. Uh, and, and I suspect there isn't going to be much more. Uh, to come out in the in the public oh, inquiry. No, he's or got another fifty-five page dossier well, on him somewhere. That he's going to unleash on us in in tweets of no more than one hundred and forty <laughs> characters. You know. No, well, I had to sit through seven hours, I think, of his evidence to the uh, to the committee, which is presumably uh, included in this report, right. which I haven't read yet. I have to say, mm. um, and and I think you know once once you've heard all that, that is pretty much all there is to know. I'm surprised we haven't yet heard from Sakir Starmer because, I mean, one of his great mantras every single week at PMQs was, you should have done that a week ago. Yeah. But why hasn't he jumped on this and well, gone, you know, this is what I said you well, should have done? He's, well, because he's a, he's a cautious lawyer and he's right. got to, he, he knows he's got to read the report before he says anything about it. I mean, it. this is the trouble um, with Keir Starmer, isn't it? But the other problem that he has is that, of course, if, if he says anything at all, then Boris, Boris Johnson's just going to call him Captain Hindsight. Yeah. Because, I mean, that is the problem with this report, right. is that it is hindsight-based. Yes. And, you know, it's all very well criticising people after the mm. event, but it's, uh, you know, it's not necessarily true that, you know, it was completely obvious at the time no. uh, what had to be done. No, quite. And, and uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, there is still quite a few questions over the way that the data was collected, the way that the data was counted, the way that people who died, you know, having gone into hospital not with COVID, but then got COVID and died, you know, there's an awful lot of kind of arguments arguments to be had still about the numbers yeah so that if you were to say make a case that was uh, to suggest that you know some elderly people would not have died if we'd done it differently I would suggest that's probably not true but because you, one they were well, it's elderly. very difficult to know well yeah absolutely but they because... were elderly and vulnerable therefore yeah. they were in danger yeah so they probably would have died well exactly I know mean, there's a there's a clear problem mm. of, of what the counterfactual is you can't right. you can't prove what would have happened no. if you had done I mean it, the one important fact different. for me is still that the two main reasons for dying from covid are weight and age those yeah. are still the two overriding factors that, right. that are the most you know sure way of, of 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 when you get it you're probably not going to survive exactly and you know that it, it took a little while for that to 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 to, to seep seep in but i yeah. mean it's certainly true that you know the average the average i mean the, the the average person who died you know could have expected another 10 years of life i mean yes. i think that is that is that is true, but it is also true that the average age of death was was about eighty two. Yes, exactly right. Let's talk about the sort of the landscape now, because you know Boris Johnson's off in his holiday home in Marbella, or exactly Zach Goldsmith's, Goldsmith's holiday, holiday home, home in Marbella. So I'm sure it's very nice. It doesn't need any heating either, and I don't criticise him for that because he's entitled to go and wear a holiday. Um, but after conference, you know, the very big difference between the Labour Party conference and the Tory Party conference was Sir Keir Starmer and his ridiculously boring long speech, which was only <laughs> highlighted by heckling. Um, and Boris Johnson's incredibly sort of um, dramatically theatrical speech, which was not really about anything apart from Boris Johnson being funny. Yeah. Um, but we're now entering this new period, aren't we, of, of you know energy crisis. I mean, the fuel crisis is over. I never really thought that was a proper crisis anyway. The, the but petrol, the petrol yeah. business. Yeah, but there's an awful right. lot 
to fix, isn't there? Yeah, there, there, there is. And there is the question about whether um, people think Boris is the right person to... To, to fix it yes. and, uh, well I don't know. think I don't think there's any reason to suggest he's not is there well you could you you could imagine that someone as as boring and competent as Keir Starmer might uh, might take more sort of well you say competent, competent decisions but, but he's, it's like when they used to call him forensic you know people call him that doesn't make him forensic you know calling him competent doesn't make him competent no no I think that's true but he's not very competent at running the Labour Party but the most uh, but the most interesting thing in the whole conference season that I that, that I saw was the the opinion poll uh, where they actually showed people clips of uh, of Boris Johnson's speech and Keir Starmer's speech and and the voters uh, actually preferred Keir Starmer's speech which I thought was astonishing because obviously well, it is journalists are biased. But then I, I'm constantly astonished by the polls that you produce when you come on this show because they don't tally with anything that <laughs> now, I ever you, hear for anybody else. Well, you, your standard response, Mike, is just to say, "Well, I don't believe it because it doesn't." Do, well, it doesn't I don't. Accord, it doesn't accord with what I think. Right. But I mean, I'm I'm evidence-driven, me. Uh, well, so, no, you're driven by polling, which is not well, polling the same. is evidence. No, it because, isn't. because polling is not evidence. Yes, there are so many variable factors a when you do a poll, depending on who you ask, how yeah. many people you ask what you ask them and, a, and and what the time of day is. A well-conducted poll by a reputable organisation is the worst way of finding out what people think apart from any other because, I mean, it's the only it's the only way of knowing what uh, what what the population as a whole well, thinks if, yeah, if you do a representative it, it, sample. No, but now, you can't do a representative sample of the whole of the country unless you yes, do you can. a poll in every of part of the country. Of course you can. That's why, that's why polling is generally pretty accurate. Um, well, despite, it's not that, despite it's not your scepticism, but this this is a special poll because the, the, this was so. Whose poll is this? Opinion, uh, and and what they did was they showed people these clips online, right. and then asked them what they thought of them. So it wasn't it wasn't a normal poll because it wasn't asking people what they thought of this of, of a speech which they hadn't seen. Because right. most people would not have seen uh, would not well, have seen I anything mean, of either of the two. If speeches. you put a bunch but, of people in a room and said, "Watch this for ninety minutes," they'd all fall asleep. Well, exactly. So there's your first problem. But that's where I'm coming to my point about journalists' bias because because we journalists obviously found Boris Johnson's forty five minutes of jokes much more interesting yeah. to sit through than than Keir well, because it was unutterably dull. It was ninety minutes. Of of, uh, of of earnest platitudes, yeah. punctuated by uh, by standing ovations and heckles. Yeah. Um, and but if you if you took if you took extracts from each speech and showed them to to typical voters, yeah. they actually preferred Keir Starmer's. Now well, I think that, that depends is very on, significant. Well, one, it depends on the extracts, and two, yes, it, it depends does. on who edited those extracts. And three, Sky, Sky News, I believe. Oh, really? So it was bound to be completely and utterly straight. And uh, what do they call of themselves course. now? Impartial. Impartial. I mean, that's the funniest line I've ever heard out of Sky News. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for God's sake. I mean, at least we call ourselves the home of common sense. We don't say we're impartial because we're not, you know, and they, neither are they, by the way. Well, but, of course. Yeah, but, yeah, I, mean, but I, don't I, mean, know, only, I don't know which clips. Well, as, show, as, as probably your uh, your friend and mine, Peter Mandelson, would say, the only opinion poll that matters is a general election. Yes. but And the, at the last one, most people didn't prefer Keir Starmer. No. That, well, no, because Keir Starmer wasn't standing. So, you know, we're, what we're trying to do is get a handle on what people will think if there is an election campaign because that's the only time that the typical voter mm. will actually pay much attention to politics because yeah. they're not they're not paying attention to politics but they will pay attention uh, to politics now. if the economy goes down the gurgler yes, yes they and might that's, that's always and, an and then one. but then the interesting thing is that when the voters are paying attention to these to, to politicians what do they actually think of them because i mean at the moment they just have a general impression of Keir Starmer because he's a boring 
he's a boring yeah. lawyer with, who, who keeps on making hindsight-based right. points. And just because Whereas, you're boring doesn't mean you're good. And just because you're boring doesn't mean you're competent. No, but the interesting thing about this poll make. is that when, when people are, are actually paying attention to, to, to bits of his speeches, mm. they do think he's good. And I think that's yeah, I well, think people that's thought Nick Clegg was good before he got into power. Significant. Yeah, well, because, you know, the Lib Dems can say anything they like. Yes. Let's give everybody free tuition. <laughs> oh, actually, no, we can't do that. But we like it when you say you're going to give us yeah. free tuition, so we'll vote for you. Yeah, but it was significant that people liked him during the during that 2010 election campaign. Mm. Yeah, it was. But let's uh, hold that thought for a moment. I'll come back to uh, John Rental in a second. He's, of course, Chief Political Commentator at The Independent. He's still banging on about polls, telling the truth. <laughs> I'm not buying it. This is Talk Radio. This is Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB+, and on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic of Mike Gray on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Lord Dodsworth is coming in for 11 o'clock. We'll hear from her uh, on the COVID front. How about this from Brian? Keir Starmer is dithering on what to say about the COVID report because if he'd been in charge, he'd have been listening to the same chief medical and chief scientific officers, says Brian. Quite yeah, a good yeah. point, actually. Ab- absolutely. Because, um, I mean, I guess there's no point in having them if you don't listen to them. <laughs> well, but... exactly. I mean, the whole the whole point about, uh, about the scientific advice mm. is that, you know, with hindsight, a lot of people are saying, oh, well, they should have contradicted it. Yes. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's... I think they ought to at least learn from the predictive nature, though, of some of the stuff they were being told, because an awful lot of the scientific advisors, in my view, are not scientific. They're behavioural scientists. Yes. Not the same thing. Well, all that stuff about uh, delaying the lockdown because people would get tired of it and mm. uh, wouldn't wouldn't obey. Yeah. I mean, all that turned out to be baloney. Yes, exactly. Uh, and you could you could you could sort of you could sense that that wasn't. Uh, wasn't right at the time. No, but, uh, but equally, people did what they were told, I think, initially, because they didn't think it was going to be for very long. Yeah. And then every sort of month that passed became something else. Well, they certainly didn't think it would go on for 18 months. No. I mean, you know, I mean, everybody knew it was going to be longer than three I mean, I think we've all weeks, forgotten but... what it was like at the beginning of this year when it went from sort of January to May. We yeah. really couldn't go anywhere. Yeah. You no, know. I think that that was astonishing, uh, actually, how, lo- how long it lasted. And that was because of, of, of new variants, which we, which we didn't really know about. Which nobody talks about anymore. About. But no, now nobody talks about them. Yeah. It's as well, if they're not Well, because they've stopped. They've vanished into the um, air. I mean, the, the, the theory is that, that Delta is, is, is the most efficient one. I mean, imagine uh, setting up an alphabetical uh, scenario and only getting to D. <laughs> yeah. You know, they could have just used numbers, couldn't they? <laughs> anyway, let's talk about uh, Europe, because Lord Frost is appearing this afternoon, I think, in Portugal, did you say? Yes, in Lisbon, yes. The greatest frost since the, that was the a great, great frost line. of 1709. That was a great line. Yeah, no, well, there were lots of great lines. In, in Boris Johnson's speech, um, it was very entertaining. He mm. had some very funny jokes, but it's just—I I just think it's worth remembering that you know, not everybody out there uh, thinks he's funny, and a lot of them and actually also a prefer lot of people, Keir Starmer's sort of serious. There's also a lot instead. of people who are having a pretty hard time. Yeah, and they're not all falling about laughing, going, "Isn't it all fantastic? Isn't no. it all great? Let's hop off to Barbaya." No, that's right. You know, and one of the difficult issues, obviously, is the Northern Ireland Protocol, and they've which uh, is still not fixed. Which is still which so is still not fr- fixed. So what's Frost's appointment with today? What's he? What's he? Who's he with? And what's he saying? He is speaking to the quotes diplomatic community in uh, in Lisbon. So I imagine okay. that's that's probably a couple of people rounded up by the uh, British <laughs> embassy in, right. in in Lisbon. It's sort of like it's like a politician I said mean, in a speech today. Yes. Uh, Tony Blair today, said where to they, yeah, where, two people in his back garden where they first signed the Lisbon Treaty. I mean is it going to be some kind of re- you know harking back to that? I mean I just I don't, don't know. I don't think so, but presumably he's he's just going to repeat uh, his case that he wants uh, that and his case is quite entertaining, which is that uh, yeah, we signed this this protocol uh, 
um, and we we shouldn't have done really. We we knew it was we mm. knew it was um, not what we wanted, but we were desperate to get the. Uh, but it's the very deal much in keeping with over. the Boris kind of ultimatum, isn't it? It's just like, well, let's just do this today, and we'll see how it goes. Yeah, exactly. And if and it goes wrong, we'll fix it later. And on on sausages, that seems to have worked. Yeah. Because in the end, you know, although you know Boris Johnson did actually sign something that said said you would not be able to mm. to send sausages. Uh, from the rest of the UK to right. Northern Ireland, uh, he's persuaded the EU not to uh, not to be too strict about that. <laughs> it's ridiculous, so, isn't it? Uh, so that's fine. But this idea of rewriting the protocol so as to take the European Court of Justice out of it, mm. I think uh, I think that is a, a step too far. Mm. Well, we shall see. Now, I did want to talk to you about Blair and Brown, but we've run out of time, I'm afraid. But oh, it is no, very good. About them. So uh, we should definitely recommend that you watch it. It's on the iPlayer. Uh, was it five parts? Is it? Five part documentary. So I've only got one to go. Yeah, well, How does it end? The- <laughs> <laughs> well, without any spoilers. No, I mean I can't take uh, I can't take huge credit. Well, I see Marianne Seacart also gets a credit I as was, well. Yeah, and uh, my friend Professor John Davis at, yes. at Kings. We were all uh, consultants. Yes. But the real the real work was done by Steve Condy, um, okay. who is the producer, and uh, they've done a fantastic job of the interviews yeah. and the and the and the archive footage. Yes, it's really just also it's very well put footage. together. It's just a good it's a very good watch, and not like, normally do I recommend anything on the BBC, but in this in this case I'll make an exception. John Rental, thank you very much indeed, <laughs> Chief Clinton Commentator for the Independent. The Independent. Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, uh, let us talk to a man who knows a thing or two about the markets, a thing or two as well about the economy, and also a thing or two about why on earth the energy prices are going so sky high. According to uh, the Times this morning, Boris Johnson uh, is getting ready to have a bailout uh, in the way of some government loans to companies which are particularly uh, energy driven and which need a lot of energy uh, to make what they make. Let's find out what's going on. David, very good morning to you. Mike, told the morning to you. Lovely to chat to you. Absolutely. Good to see you too. So there's been a bit of a row, hasn't there, between the Treasury and Kwasi Kwarteng, which looked yesterday as though the Treasury was winning it. It now looks as though the Treasury are being leaned on by Boris to uh, to come up with some cash, which sadly, of course, is our cash, uh, which we're going to be giving to companies who have been threatening that they might have to shut down. Well, I think there's two ways of looking at this. I mean, Kwasi Kwarteng is not somebody who makes idle comments. Um whether the Treasury spokesman who said this conversation between himself and uh, Rishi Sunak had not taken place may well be true, mm. but there would have been an ongoing dialogue somewhere along the line, and I'm not being protective of anybody. I think one of the things that worries me more than anything else is that many of these energy companies have had the facility. They've made absolutely humongous profits during the course of the last 10 years, and they do have facilities to be able to uh, underwrite their issues and their requirements in terms of price by using derivative markets and other areas in order, in order to protect themselves. And one suspects that there's been a little bit of gung-ho fixed bayonet and over-the-top attitude towards this that have left a few of them, particularly some of the smaller companies, wanting. Um, other companies have done very well out of this and did actually legislate for problems that could come in the future. Mm. It's, I mean, the facilities from banks and other things have been there, Mike, for generations. And it's just really lazy that if you don't do some of your requirements, whether it's foreign exchange, whether it's energy supply, gas or anything, if you don't take some facilities to protect yourself, I'm afraid you're laying yourself wide open. And this is what's happened to an awful lot of people in business, industry and commerce. I feel very much more sympathy for them than I do the providers. Yes. um, Because they, you know, it's not their job to legislate for that sort of thing. 
they've got to legislate for what they've got to do in, in terms of their individual thing. I think there's no question you can't let too many people go to the war. I mean, I think the British steel um, industry, which is pretty small, mm. but very important, it would be wrong if, uh, you know, Liberty Steel and others were to go down 3,000 jobs, but it's not like, I mean, I don't know if anybody's been to Scunthorpe, but if British Steel or the steel industry went down there, it is a city or a town that is absolutely deprived of so much, it just couldn't take it. Mm. So I think people know that. And I think it is fair that they'd be given the opportunity of having loans and other, how can I put it, ancillary businesses or people that are adversely affected to get those facilities. Sure. But I mean, I think people's incredulity is based around the ridiculous price of energy now and how it's been allowed to get to this point, you know, because while uh, companies, uh, and I've personally seen, I think Lance Foreman put out a tweet saying that his company bill now for electricity will rise by £150,000 a year. You know, it's an unsustainable thing. I've seen other companies saying, you know, this will basically wipe out our profit margin of around about 200000 a year. And then you've got the individual household expenses, which are going literally through the roof. And I don't understand what the government can do to stop this from happening. Well, the, the problem is, I mean, this may sound silly, but our problem here is a logistical one, is getting the, the stuff transported around. We've got a, yeah. a supply problem, not a demand problem. And we're in much better shape than perhaps the European Union is, because I think one of the uh, less judicious things that uh, Angela Merkel did was to agree that deal with uh, Putin over the supply of gas coming from places like um, Iraq, Iran, Syria mm. and Libya via Ukraine, right. because he is now smiling like a, you know, like a Cheshire cat, uh, turning the tap on and off at will yeah. as he sees fit. And they are very, very exposed. Whereas we get, I think, something around 12% of our gas from uh, European Union. Nonetheless, it is it is a major problem because when one big area gets squeezed, obviously this is exactly mm. what happens to the rest of it. Yeah, and but, but isn't I, it also know, the fact that their prices haven't rocketed as much as ours because they have more capacity, more storage, and therefore they're not so reliant on, on a sort of spot price, if you like? I think that's right. Um, and as I say, if we had a better supply uh, situation, I mean, we are just not getting goods and chattels, energy, um, anything around the countryside, petrol, uh, to the degree we can. I mean, even now we're th two and a half months away from Christmas, but you do see holes in the supermarket. And you do see, uh, you know, if you ask for something like, for instance, I wanted a couple of light fittings completely out of them. And, you know, this is a major problem with the supply chain thing. And if we can get that supply chain sorted out, it was interesting to note this morning, for instance, that Dame Sharon White and uh, John Lewis, who've not enjoyed the best 18 months imaginable, mm. they have had the foresight to see that there are problems and they are paying their drivers now a proper living wage and they are getting people applying to them for jobs. And I think uh, business has to wake up to this situation and deal with it themselves. It's all very well doing the Oliver Twist bit, um, whether it's with uh, Kwasi Kwarteng or whether it's with uh, Rishi Sunak, you know, life is not a philanthropic society. No. And if you're in the big world of business and it's not the public sector, 
you have to live by the sword and I'm afraid die by it. Yes, absolutely right. No, listen, I'm very glad that we didn't start bailing out these energy companies who were basically acting as middlemen and just buying in energy supplies and flogging them on for a massive profit. I'm sorry that they've gone bust, but, you know, that was the risk they took. And that's capitalism as far as I'm concerned. But, I mean, what I worry about, though, uh, is that it's all very well saying let's pay everybody more money. Um, but that's going to have a knock-on effect on inflation. You know, the Bank of England's worried about that. Um, you know, where do we end up if we just keep giving everybody a pay rise? Well, we end up in horrible trouble. I mean, as you so rightly pointed out, and, uh, you know, let's face it, we had £300 billion of the borrowings last year. We got £230 billion scheduled up until April 2022. We've already got the hawks out in the street in the form of uh, Hugh Pill, the new um, chief executive, chief economist from the Bank of England, who's part of the old Goldman Sachs alumni and has spent several years at the European Central Bank, so he knows exactly how many beans make four. Mm. And Michael Saunders, who's always always been a bit of a hawk, as a, you know, as a non-employee, but a very considered and well-regarded member of the MPC committee, saying we've got to put rates up. And I put it to them, and I could be wrong, that as I've said to you, we've got a supply-driven inflation, not demand-driven. So if we could get this supply sorted out mm. in the next three to, three to six months, it wouldn't be necessary to put interest rates up. Now, if you look at the markets, they're scheduled for three quarter percent hikes in 2022, maybe taking us up to 1% at the end of 2022. Now, the hawks are saying, well, no, no, we can't wait that long. It's going to be 6% inflation by the end of the year. So we need to have a hike this side of Christmas. I think that's wrong. And let me try and explain to you why. Mm. I think it's only a relatively short space of time. I think momentum between now and Christmas is absolutely vital to get business up and running. We have very good employment figures today, but you have got a couple of conundrums. One is that probably furloughing people in very difficult areas like entertainment, travel and those sort of areas won't get employment. And then you've got 1.1 million vacancies. And to try and fill those gaps, is there if people want to do it. But when you consider that the public fed, one, an increase in taxation, two, an increase in fuel and petrol, which has been dramatic, three, which you alluded to, which causes the gas increase, you've got general inflation going on with clothes and other areas. You've got also um, the situation of mortgages now have started to go up. This is a real pressure on people. Mm. So I do beg the Bank of England, no interest rate hike until 2022, for the reasons I've given, you're going to be throwing the baby out with the bathwater in terms of growth and getting the economy back on its feet. Right. And as far as the sort of long term outlook for the markets is concerned, you've mentioned there that, uh, you know, they, they seem to be reasonably sort of um, healthy, if you like. The oil went up again, I think, yesterday uh, to $80, $80 a barrel. Um, and so there's more pressure, I presume, on energy as we get further into the winter. Very much so. But there again, that's a, an OPEC situation which has got 40 percent of the market that's also a supply situation i mean your um, listeners may have seen last week that but a month ago we had 40 odd ships waiting outside los angeles waiting to dock mm. supply chain issues last week outside of san diego 71 ships waiting to unload or pick up stuff and this everybody thinks oh this is something that's very peculiar to the united kingdom very peculiar to people who voted for brexit wrong it is a global problem. Mm. And as regards markets generally, I mean, I think um, that if we could sort the supply chain out relatively quickly, if Jay Powell retains his job 
as the uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve and doesn't lose, lose it as a result of injudicious behavior by two of his members. And we can keep on a sensible path of increasing rates slowly, but very surely in 2022-23, we'll be okay. If not, and any sign of interest rates going up and also cuts in quantitative easing, Make sure your tin hat's not too far away because <laughs> some of these equity markets are fully valued. And they're not necessarily, if we're going to select another gear and we're going to be gung-ho, fixed banners and over the top and really push on for growth in 2023. Just a moment, because I know I'm talking too much, but just to finally not say, at all. When, when Goldman suddenly turned to me, now Goldman's is not everything. So whoops, we're going to cut growth from 2023, 22 down from 4.4 to 4%, and we're cutting this year down from 57 to 5.6%. They're not the only people doing it, Mike. Mm. And that is because of the supply chain and the inflation problem. Yes, and that is something to be very, very much aware of. And how does this all affect our pensions? Because a lot of people worry now more about that than almost anything else. And rightly so. And to be honest with you, we've had in equity marks on a global basis, the best run over the last two years that we're ever likely to see in my lifetime, your lifetime or my grandchildren's lifetime. But what we don't want to see is that eroded. And we've got to be very, very circumspect. And I think fund managers are cuter now than they've ever been to make sure that they get the right balance and that they don't load the truck up on stuff that happens to be vogue and sexy at the time and that they have a good, sensible balance. And I just think the quality of fund management now is better than, probably better than ever. Private equity on the sidelines is very, uh, uh, how can I put it? Best thing is very robust at the moment, buying everything that moves. Why? Because raising money through debt, which is so cheap now, as against doing it on the public market, which is quite expensive doing it through the equity market. But again, one of the things that we haven't discussed that people need to be, uh, very conscious of is global debt, whether it's government or private or commercial, is gargantuan. And interest rates, ladies and gentlemen, are a lot like door numbers, they move. Mm, absolutely right. Well, a very comprehensive uh, roundup there, David. Thank you very much indeed uh, for your wise words. David Buick, market commentator at Aquis Exchange, of course, uh, telling us precisely why uh, we've got a problem uh, with inflation, but it's supply driven rather than um, demand driven which is a slightly different thing. But I need to hear from all of you out there because we keep hearing, don't we? David mentioned there that there are things missing in supermarkets. I still don't have any idea what is supposedly missing because I asked for people yesterday to call in to tell me what they were seeing in supermarkets, on petrol station forecourts, in all sorts of other situations. Can you not get stuff? Well, nobody called me to tell me that they couldn't get stuff. Why? Because I don't think it's as bad as people are making out, particularly some people in the media. I'm not suggesting David Buick's one of them. What I am saying is that the supply problem uh, is a demand problem in a way, because if people were not demanding to get stuff that they can't apparently get, there wouldn't be an issue, would there? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
This is Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB+, and on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We'll be taking your calls throughout the show, of course. 0344 499 1000 is the number to call us on because that uh, is where you will find the home of common sense. And I'm particularly interested today uh, in your eyes and ears and what you're seeing and what you're doing and what you're being told out there because Laura Dodsworth is coming in shortly. She's going to be telling us uh, about why it is that uh, Sajid Javid has now suddenly ramped up the pressure on parents. He wants parents to tell their children to get vaccinated. Guess why? Because hardly any children are getting vaccinated between the ages of 12 and 15 because they don't want to and neither do their parents want them to. So there's the whole in Sajid Javid's argument. But of course, now what they're trying to say uh, is that if you don't get them vaccinated, they may miss school. They may not be face to face classes. Well, why not? What's going on? We'll be finding out with Laura. But before we do any of that, and before we take any of your calls about what is actually going on out there on the forecourts of this land and on the supermarket shelves of this land and whether things are really missing in the way that we're being told that they are, let us talk about language. Yesterday, uh, we found British Airways were a company that had decided to no longer say ladies and gentlemen to people when they make announcements on the planes. Today, we've got some very clever people who call themselves engineers who say that they don't want to be called engineers anymore because engineers is a word which has been taken away from proper engineers because they're saying it's nothing to do with engines. It's to do with being ingenious. Now, you know as well as I do, some people think they're cleverer than you. Some people think because they voted to remain in the European Union that they've got more brains than you. Some people think that because you voted for Brexit that you're some kind of racist bigot, right? And of course, one of the reasons that they say you're a racist bigot and an idiot is because you don't understand what's going on. You voted the wrong way because you're too stupid to understand. So here we are, Professor Elena Rodriguez Falcon, head of one of Britain's newest universities, has said this. We've already lost the title engineer to people who fix TVs, washing machines, cars, the boiler. They're important jobs, but they're not engineering jobs. What else is there to lose, she says. Well, hang on a minute, Professor Elena Rodriguez-Falcon. Why is a washing machine engineer not an engineer? Why is a TV engineer not an engineer? Why is a sound engineer not an engineer? They really are quite pathetic. They're so full of themselves. They're full of pomposity. So they reckon that ingeniators is the word we should be using, right? Because all engineers who are proper engineers, not TV engineers or sound engineers, these are engineers who are actually clever. So they have to be called something which sounds a bit like ingenious, right? Apparently, in Spanish, the word is ingenierio. In German, it is ingenieur. In French, it is ingenieur. Sounds a bit like engineer, doesn't it? Why do people keep wanting to change the bleeding language, for heaven's sake? Can't you just be accepting of the fact that if you're an engineer, you can be any number of different kinds of engineer. What difference does it make? I mean, you might as well not call me a journalist, right? Why don't you call me a journalier, eh? Or perhaps a flaneur, or come up with some other word which doesn't describe what I do. We don't have to call them ingeniators, do we? Really? Engineers. That's fine, isn't it? It's fine with me, anyway. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. So, Laura Dodsworth, very good morning to you. Very good morning to you yeah, too. Yes, I always feel better when you come in. I don't know what it is about your persona 
uh, your uh, joie de vivre. My general aura. Your aura. I just like to sprinkle it as I walk in. Do you in. believe in all that, the aura that people talk about? You know, that some people, mm. you know, will tell you some of those who are sometimes trying to make money out of you by giving you advice on how you should live your life when they talk about auras and you have a good or dark aura, you have a light aura. I mean, I'm not saying I buy it, but you know. Uh, well, mine is mine is silver sparkles and and uh, rainbow sprinkles. Okay. So yes, I believe it. Now I think people can have a presence. They mm. can come into a room and light things up and be cheerful. Or yes. you can feel someone's mood. There's something going on, isn't there? I don't know about auras, but yeah. there's, there's presence. Oh, I think people's ability yeah. to change the atmosphere in a room is definitely a thing. You know, it's a thing. I mean, definitely. I generally have that effect on people. Like they generally either leave the room when I walk in, or uh, quite like the fact that I've walked in. So they fall into two categories. What do you know? Do you know what effect you have on me, Mike? Go on. Well, there's there's many effects, but is the that... one I'm going to mention now is well, just as you were doing your intro then, and this is the same one I'm listening at home. I find myself kind of like hopping from foot to foot yes. and wanting to put up my hand and say, "Me, me, I I want to join in this yes. conversation because right. it's it's always it's always the juicy stuff." Right. I love that intro then because yes, there's good news. COVID is not the most serious threat to health. We've been so told by the eminently sensible Dr Jenny Harris. Yes. The bad news that teenagers' mental health has suffered terribly with release of some new figures from the ONS. The unsurprising news that the first cross-party report on the government's pandemic management is a bit of a whitewash. Yes. And then we need an update on vaccinating teenagers. So I was like, I was itching to jump in at every, yes. every little bit of Okay, well, where do you want to start? Um, let's start with the good news. Why okay. not start with the good? Um, Andrew Marr interviewed Dr Jenny Harris. She said that... COVID's no longer the most serious threat to health, but I mean, it's not all good news because mm. flu might be very serious this winter, she said. But there was a lot that I really liked about her appearance on TV, and I wish we'd just seen so much more of her during the pandemic. First of all, she... She's definitely preferable to Valance and Witty, isn't she? I think she's very balanced. Mm. She gets across lots of important points. For instance, when she talked about the modelling, she said, don't overly worry about the upper ends of the limits of modelling. Mm. Don't put all your attention there on the bad news. Let's look at the whole picture. Right. That's great. Um, you know, she also reminded people how many ten, how many people tend to die in flu seasons. You know, it could be anything from four to 22,000 yeah. deaths a winter, right. as it has been for several years. So let's get that in our heads. Yes, people will die of flu like they always do. I basically had a sense that she was winding down the fear. Mm, yes. And so if we've got to the stage of the epidemic where Dr Jenny Harris is winding down the fear, that's good news for us. That is good news. But there was that 60,000 figure that came out of that interview, I think, wasn't there? Where she said there could be as many as 60,000 people dying of flu and COVID put together. And I just kind of sighed, you know, with a heavy heart when I saw that, because I just thought, that's not what people need to hear. She did. But if you were listening, she said, that's the upper end. Don't fixate mm. just about the upper end. That's the worst end. Yes, but of guess what the media fixated nine. on? That's the upper yeah. end, right? And that's what the headlines were. Yes, all the supine, fear-mongering mm. headlines. Yeah. Yes, there's a there's a lot for for journalists to learn from Dr. Jenny Harris. Mm. You know, don't just go for the big number for right. the for the clickbait. What's the actual story? Um, the other thing that she said, which I liked, and I really hope people are going to tune into. You know, teachers unions are calling for more measures, but she said masks are not her top recommendations in schools. Mm. It's not the first thing she's gonna she's gonna lean into. Right. We, we know the evidence is weak. And I thought that that was really good that she popped that reminder yes, into her interview I think so. as well. Because the one thing I haven't seen yet as an answer, I was asking, I was talking to my kids at the weekend about, um, you know, the whole vaccine rollout and everything. And, and the youngest one, I said, you know, what do you see? And he said, well, we're not really seeing any of it. I don't think anybody's there doing it. Mm. So, so I think there's a lot of schools that haven't even begun to try and do it because they've got such a low take up on it 
that they're not bothering. But they also said, because I got an email from them at the start of the term, that at the end of September they would review the testing procedure. Now, mm. I don't know whether that's happened. Um, they haven't issued any kind of update to say we've now decided not to test. So I don't know whether they're still doing that. They are testing. Right, should we, should we jump ahead then to vaccinating 12 to 15-year-olds? Yeah. It, it came out in the news the other day that only 11% of 12 to 15-year-olds have been vaccinated in England. Now, that compares with 32% in Scotland. So there's two things going on here. There's obviously a demand thing going on, mm. but it's different between England and Scotland, which means there's also a supply thing going on. Right. So according to the ONS back in the summer, 86% of parents said they would want their primary or secondary school-aged children to be vaccinated. Mm. And I think, as always, what we have to remember is there can be a difference between what people say they will do when they're polled yep. or surveyed and what they really do in real mm. life. It doesn't surprise me that the actual numbers are much lower than the poll um, because this age group doesn't have the same risk and there's a lot about this vaccine rollout which has been controversial yeah. the jcvi said they didn't recommend mass rollout mm. now they had a meeting about this and those minutes haven't been released yet someone's put in a freedom of information request and the uk health security agency has decided not to release yes. the minutes did now, you see did you see sorry to interrupt you did you see that mail on sunday story from the week before last i think it was where they had asked on, a, on an foi to get the minutes uh, or, or the details of emails exchanged between the us government and the british government yeah. at, very, at the very start and they got them and it was all redacted literally everything apart a, from the address and the date it was a black yeah. Now, this is not good for public trust that and transparency. That is not democracy, in my view. Well, it's it's not. Freedom of information requests don't work very well, as I know in my own opinion, having researched a book and having done a whole ton of them. And I'm still going back and forth on some now that I'm not yeah. going to let go. No, do you know what? Um, my, my belief is that Tony Blair introduced the Freedom of Information Act in order to stop giving out information. Because when I was a proper journalist, as, it, as, it, as, as I would say when I was actually working for a newspaper... You're a proper journalist now. Well, now I'm a sort on. of broadcaster, superstar <laughs> type, you know, oh. thing on personal television. Um, but when I used to actually do proper stories, you know, um, it was pretty easy to get information out of government departments. But you didn't need the Freedom of Information Act. You just had relationships with the people in those departments who would tell you things and would tell mm. you things they couldn't tell you, but would then tell you things that they could tell you off the record. And it was a lot easier, whereas now you have to make this application, you go through this process... And more often than not, unless your specific question is specifically answered, you don't get an answer. The system is broken. Now, we're digressing a little bit, but why not? I think this is interesting. There was um, one of my freedom of information requests wasn't answered. So I put in what's called a subject access request. So that's basically to see everything they said about me mm. in relation to that. Right. And the answer was... Um, we shouldn't answer this because if we do, it will lead to more questions from Laura Dodsworth. And I was like, well, yes, okay. she's right, it will. So th that's the point I've right. got to now. So now I know where I have to put my next freedom of mm. information request to find out the thing they said they didn't want me to ask about. Yes. So it is it is it's very onerous, obstructive. It? Yeah. It's a very difficult process to go through. But I think that the, um, the UK HSA has made a really big mistake here because... If you want parents to trust the advice, the chief medical officers, give them the full information. There's two, there's, there's two things here. There's two things they're getting wrong in a pincer movement. They're not releasing the JCVI minutes. And also, the consent information doesn't list the risks properly. Mm. So there was an education select committee, which I watched. I'm geeky like this. And the medical people in there said, yes, the information has to be spelt out for people. Put the risks 
put the risks down. You know, what's the one in so many thousand risk of myocarditis? Put yeah. it in the information leaflet so people can make a properly informed decision. Well, that's not in there. Right. And I've seen emails from parents to their local authorities, their immunisation teams, asking for the data and being told they don't have it. Yeah. Well, they do have Which it. Which is not true. Somewhere. Yeah. The local immunisation teams might not have it, but that information is held. So some of the granular detail is withheld, and then the JCVI minutes withheld. That doesn't increase trust. No. And then throw into that whole mix, there's the fact that um, teenagers have been told for the last 18 months, don't kill granny, which is a big emotional burden. Yeah. And then they've been bribed with things like ASDA vouchers or raffles for football tickets mm. or cash prizes at universities. It's kind of a weird approach to a vaccine. Mm. Um, I mean, I've just written an article about the nudge and the coercion aimed at teenagers on my new Substack. Sorry, little plug. That's and, right. you know, on the day I do that, the government writes to schools to say, I've got a quote, it's a little bit of a threat, to make sure your children are able to stay in face-to-face -face learning, encourage them to come forward for the COVID-19 vaccine. Yes. And, it, I mean, that feels like the ultimate coercion. Doesn't you know, it? well, if you want them to stay in school, then they've got to get vaccinated. And again, none of this really creates trust and confidence no. i was listening to vaughan gethin this morning talking to julia about the why you know she kept saying what well, you know what, what's your evidence for this vaccine passport plan that you've got and that you've introduced and he couldn't answer her you know and it was all this kind of you know um sort of going off on tangents about how well we need to take a series of measures and mm. it's all part of the you know uh, the way of minimizing we know that for example and he said one thing where he said we know for example that people will pass covid to one another in nightclubs and you go well how would you know that they haven't been open Right. For a start. Mm. And if people are vaccinated, they can still do it anyway. So, you know, there's this kind of bizarre and I still can't really get my head around what they want from kids. Why do they want them vaccinated? What difference does it make? Well, it's it is strange because we know in March 2021 that one third of teenagers had already had COVID. We know that from Department of Health surveillance data. Right. And it's estimated that 50 to 70 percent will have been infected by now because Delta was more transmissible. Mm. So if so many of them have had COVID, it's not really going to make too much of a difference. We know they get it very mildly. And we know that about 90 percent of adults in the country have been vaccinated. Mm. So I don't really understand this pressure to no. get them vaccinated. No. And... I'd say the most simple step would be to stop asymptomatic testing. Now, we also know that there's a problem in an increase in the number of false positives, and the UK Health Security Agency has acknowledged that. It was reported in The Telegraph, I think, this morning. Mm. So the number of false positives going up. So that means that, you know, not only are they getting tested when they don't feel ill, right. They're getting false positives, which is making them take that time off learning right. that they don't need to. They don't need to do, yeah. and it causes a lot of um, anxiety and stress. So, and in Denmark, for example, at the moment, where all restrictions have been lifted, they have a rule which is that if you have been in contact with somebody who has had a positive test, you don't have to self-isolate unless you have symptoms and you have you know some form of a test which then tests positive. Then you go mm -hmm. home from school, but you don't go home from school automatically like you do here. Well, that would be that would be very sensible yeah. because you are far less infectious without symptoms. It's the symptoms mm. that make you spread it, the coughing, yeah. the sneezing. So I think we have to remember what the chief medical officer said. This vaccine is supposed to be an offer. 
um, and individual choice should be respected. So there's something in that letter, which overall is not a bad letter, but there's something in the letter which has just implies this thinly veiled mm. threat. Yeah. And that's on top of 18 months of nudge, coercion, threats and shaming children mm. and teenagers. You know, the blame's been laid at their right. feet really unfairly. Exactly. And we've always said as well, if you have a child and you want that child to be vaccinated, there's no reason why you couldn't have that happen. But why are yeah. they offering it to everybody? when clearly most people don't want it. Well, so it, it, the, the take-up is higher in Scotland. It's 32%, but that's still the majority haven't been vaccinated yet. But in Scotland, they're doing walk-in centres, mobile units. Mm. They're not relying on the school rollout. There's been a lot of logistical problems. It hasn't happened in lots of schools yet. And I think that that environment creates this feeling of additional pressure as well. Um, you know, we've talked about this, I think, week after week that we think it's a mistake to do the rollout in schools because of the peer pressure, because teachers and, and children's friends will see who is and isn't getting vaccinated. And that's really uncomfortable. Yes. Um, I know from talking to teenagers that they don't want it to happen in school because they feel embarrassed and mm. they don't want their friends to know right. one way or the other. Right. So Scotland's I had a better I think a lot of uptake. adults feel that way as well. You know, those who, who, you know, you and I both share the the view that, you know, people should not ask you whether you've had a vaccine or not. And if everybody ever does ask me, I say, I'm not telling you. It's got none of your business. Yeah. yeah. Get exactly. lost. Exactly. You know? And so we are now at this point, though, where... COVID until today really hasn't been talked about that much but suddenly now this report is out in which it's being suggested that the government more or less got everything wrong um but it but the reason I said in the in the intro to this that I think they're sort of drawing the wrong conclusions from that they seem to be drawing conclusions that you know they should have locked down earlier when in fact they've now at least admitted that March the 23rd was the peak of the infection mm. so by the time they locked down it was already sort of on the way I think there's a couple of things wrong with that report. So we've done the good news. That's behind us now. Onto the unsurprising news, which is this report. Um, it, there will be some self-congratulatory elements, which is the things we did right. We, you know, we had first mover advantage with vaccines. There's a lot we did right. The unsurprising news is that probably, I'm going to put this forward controversially, one of the most harmful things we did was to lock down. Yes. Instead of coming at it from outside the framework and really interrogating whether we should lock down or not, they're just saying we should have locked down yes. earlier. And I which, think that's taking the wrong sort of path, if you like. Yeah. So I think that probably we're still guilty of one of the other accusations in the report, which is groupthink. Mm. I think people are still in groupthink because it's too soon. And it's also really difficult for the enactors of a policy to take a step back and go, well, maybe that policy was wrong. Mm. Not not wrong to do it late, but wrong to do it at all. There are counterfactuals. There's Sweden, there's Florida, there's uh, Dakota. And increasingly, there's empirical evidence building up to show that lockdowns don't work. Right. So I'm worried about the whitewashing of that. What we don't want to do is next time there's an, a novel virus to ignore all of the pandemic preparedness mm. we had before and lock down again. Now, the other thing about that report which worries me is that they haven't mentioned Exercise Alice, right. which was pandemic planning specifically about SARS and MERS. And if you remember, that came out in the news the other week that this was only released through a Freedom of Information request. So last year, there was a lot of talk, oh, we could never prepare for a novel virus. We mm. couldn't prepare for a novel pandemic. Actually, um, SARS was on, on the National Risk Register. It was high up yeah. and there was pandemic planning for it. And there was specifically this exercise, Alice, which has only just been released. The fact that it's not mentioned in this cross-party report 
implies a little bit of whitewashing because they should all know about mm. it by now. Yeah, and they should. Well, many of them probably who were on that committee were involved in it, weren't they? Probably, I don't know. Um, I mean, Jeremy Hunt's didn't... getting a bit of flack this morning because yeah. he's being seen as being a bit overtly political because everybody knows he hates Boris Johnson and, you know, he wants to lead the party and not, you know, but he was the Secretary of State for Health at some of the points at which this report refers mm. when things weren't done properly. Mm. Well, what no pandemic plan ever did before was recommend a lockdown. Mm. So there's a, I feel like there's a rewriting of history, but I'll be honest, I haven't read it yet because it only came out this morning and I yeah. was straight in here, but it's, it's what I'm doing this week, yeah. uh, going through it and, and gathering some more opinions mm. on it. I mean, my sense is that Boris Johnson certainly doesn't want to do any more lockdowns. I don't think he really wants to, but we've all heard him saying that before. I really don't want to do this or I'm mm. doing this with a heavy heart, but he does it anyway. I can't really see any circumstance under which we'd have to do it. Well, Because all of, even the latest modelling which they said would result possibly in 7,000 cases a day in hospital. You know, it's kind of nowhere near that. No, of course not. Nowhere near that. And not only is, I mean, COVID is not the most serious threat to health, right. as we've been told now, but there have been over 70,000 excess deaths at home which are not COVID mm. related. I mean, that's a huge worry. The NHS waiting list is over 12 million. Mm. It was World Health, it was World Mental Health Day on Sunday. So some figures were released by the ONS about teenage mental health. Now, this is a huge worry. Um, a quarter of 11 to 16 year olds with mental health problems said it's the restrictions yeah. that made their lives and their mental health worse. I'm sure that's right. Well, it, it felt like that in my house yeah. anyway. I think every parent can relate to mm. that. I'm surprised it's only a quarter. Yeah. And the number of people aged 0 to 18 referred to mental health services between April and June in 21 was up 93% mm. from the same period the last year. And that was up 41% on the same period the, the year before. Yeah. So we can see this huge increase in referral to mental health services. So no more lockdowns. Please. No masks, no more pressure on teenagers. We really need to lighten up yeah. and stop treating children and teenagers like they're vectors of disease, like they're the problem, mm. and that they have to um, they have to take the responsibility for this because they, they don't. We right. should be the ones looking after them, yes. not them being a human shield for and us. And also stop frightening the hell out of them that they could die from this as well. And I mean, of course, if anything is possible on, on the sort of Richter scale of, of risk, but it's a very unlikely state of affairs that a teenager gets COVID and ends up dying. Yeah. So there's all sorts of things, you know, when we were talking about driving, you know, my sister's visiting me. She, when she was 17, um, one of her friends was killed in a car crash and she was in the car. Luckily, mm -hmm. she survived, but her friend died. And, you know, my son is 17 and we were talking about it because we were talking about driving and how dangerous it is and how you see these awful stories of, mm. you know, four boys in a car crashing into a crash barrier and they're all dead. You know, there are risks out there that we all have to navigate as parents and as kids and you have to weigh up one against the other. And, you know, driving around at 70 miles an hour in the dark when it's raining isn't a very good idea. But, you know, going to school without a mask on is probably less of a risk I'm sure. I'm sure. Thinking about how my teenage son cycle, that that getting to school is, Cycling, is probably one yeah. of the most dangerous aspects of their Absolutely. lives. Absolutely, you yeah. can't guarantee life. Yeah. I'm afraid, and people should stop okay. trying to. And and I, when Boris said last week, um, you know, the government can't fix everything for you. It's the first time he said something that I've actually really quite applauded and, and agreed with. Because we've become, I think, a society where mm. people are looking to the government to fix everything for them. You go, well, why why are you not protecting me from this? Well, how about you take some responsibility for your own life mm. and decide to behave in a way which is actually 
responsible. Absolutely. Gosh, what a claustrophobic world that would be. Yes, but so many people have become used to that. And even if they weren't before, they, you know, since the lockdown, they have become more like that. You know, like, what the hell's going on at the supermarket? Why can't I buy pasta? Have something else. You can buy pasta. Don't start a pasta shortage. I'm Stop, not saying Mike. that we, we almost I'm not, started no. a chicken shortage the other week. Did we? Yeah. Well, on. listen, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not buying this shortage nonsense. I'm not buying the supply chain cobblers, you know. I haven't had a problem getting anything, you know. Nothing at all. And there's every every time I've gone to get petrol, I've got petrol. We just all need to follow you and check where you're going That's to stock the way up to do on it. your petrol and fuel. And fuel. But you'll be like keep, you'll be like quite, the Pied Piper Quite difficult Hamlin. to keep tabs on me, I have to say. <laughs> I've been avoiding that for many years. So let's finish up because we have to go very shortly, very quickly on Superman's uh, son. Yes. Oh, let's. Go on. Oh, la la, the gossip. Well, there's a lot of bisexuality in the news isn't at there? the moment, isn't there? So we have... Um, Bisexual MP, Diana yes. Davison, and now we have bisexual son of Superman has yeah. been incorrectly report incorrectly reported as Superman goes goes bisexual. He doesn't. It's his son. Right. It's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, I I don't care I, honestly. I mean, I don't want to know what <laughs> Superman does in bed or his son. Frankly. Really? Don't you? No. No. I mean, all I know is that he wears tights, right? Well, I think so, there's something about superheroes where they are actually quite camp. I'm not surprised we finally got a bisexual superhero because they, the outfits are very, they're very camp and theatrical. Well, I said to Julia, surely man should be removed from the name Superman, shouldn't it, in these gender neutral times? Oh my goodness, that's a very good point. So never mind the bisexuality. What about the, the gender specificity? can't say it. Specificity. Maybe that's the next superhero. But no, it does. It does feel like it's a lot of bisexuality in the news, and it's and it's funny because it's like a private matter. But I tell you what, I do. Think well, I love the idea that people say, but it's not a big deal. But you know, here's a big picture of me on the front page of the paper. I'm going to do a big interview on television about it. But don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Well, maybe for some people it becomes a big deal because it makes them feel quite current and newsworthy. Mm. Maybe the Superman franchise needed shaking up a bit. I don't know. But is there a big audience of bisexual viewers who've been? Dying for a bisexual superhero that they can relate to and look up to. I can't say I'm going to tune in to the next Superman movie with any more vigour than I would have otherwise done. No, I don't know. I'm not sure. What I'm about Spider-Man? Hmm. Well, you're picking superheroes I that I don't. Can be bisexual, you're, can they? You're, you're picking superheroes that I don't. I don't really fancy. So okay. it does, it you don't doesn't. Like it doesn't really bother me if James Bond became gay. That would be sad. Well, you remember the line in um, Skyfall when he was with um what's his face and said what makes you think it's my first time do you remember that no i don't, don't remember that i don't remember. see i've completely i've completely ah. whitewashed that from my oh, brain. okay nothing well you know the villain the in way, skyfall right the guy yeah. with, the, with the teeth that come out and he's rubbing james bond's knees at one oh, point yes, before yes. they shoot the whiskey off the girl's yeah. head right yeah yeah and he's sort of flirting with him in a way Ah, then, you're right. And then James kind of says, what makes you think it's my first time? As if he'd had some boarding school experience. You're right, I'd have raised it. But still, there's nothing wrong... With, God, I hope I haven't upset anyone. There's nothing wrong with a gay or bisexual super of, of any sort, but the ones I fancy, I don't really... Okay. I just don't really think them that way. But we've had a lesbian cat woman. Yes. I, I, honestly, I, I couldn't care less, really. I mean, I just think... I just, it makes the people who make it happen look ridiculous, I think, because there's no need. The only thing is it just feels a little bit contrived, yeah, exactly. doesn't it? It just feels contrived. But let's see how it does. Mm, it may well do well. We shall, see. we shall see. Laura Dodsworth, we're out of time, unfortunately. Thank you very much indeed. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
Now, there are times when you just say, I told you so. And I'm afraid this is one of those times when what we've been saying here at Talk Radio for a very long time uh, is that the government was getting an awful lot wrong last year, particularly at the start of the pandemic. But unfortunately, the report which is out today, uh, largely put together by a committee run by Jeremy Hunt, the former Secretary of State for Health, um, we are not taking the same conclusions from it that he is and that they are. So let's talk to Dr Tony Hinton to find out what he makes of it all. Tony, very good afternoon to you. Afternoon, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. What was your first reaction when you saw this report? Well, I could have told them what their conclusions were going to be 12 months ago, because it was obvious they were going to come out and say you had to lock down sooner and harder. In fact, I would say the government initially got things right because they weren't going for lockdown. Initially, Patrick Vallance and the Prime Minister and Chris Whitty were all explaining that they wanted to just keep the number of cases below the level that would stress the NHS, Mm. not to stop it completely because you couldn't stop it. The idea was to protect the vulnerable people, which they failed to do, as it turned out, and allow it to spread amongst the more healthy people to get some natural immunity and to get that before we got to the winter. And then what did they do? They turned around completely and did the complete opposite, the lockdowns and on every single lockdown in fact infections were coming down well before the lockdown started yeah. and then they pushed the next wave into the winter the worst possible time for the NHS but I'm not surprised this conclusion is what they've come to because they'd already decided the answer before they sat down to mm. discuss it. Yes and I mean what does it mean? I mean, does it mean that they will take from this report that they should have locked down earlier, that they should have locked down for longer? Because there's no evidence really in the report to suggest that. No, it was their conclusion that they decided to fit the report too. If you look at the evidence around the world, um, in Europe, certainly, probably the country that's done best is Sweden. Yeah. And we started off following that same model but they had the guts to stick to it. And here they panicked and changed. I think when there was that modeling study brought forward by our friend um, Ferguson, Mm. Professor Ferguson, um, of like half a million deaths and things, if we didn't lock down immediately, I think that spooked them. But every one of their predictions has been wrong. I'm predicting at the moment that we should be having 7,000 admissions to hospitals every day. And there's less than a tenth of that. Mm. So they've never had a model that's been correct. I don't know why they're still listened to. Well, I find it extraordinary. And also the fact that they talk about groupthink and the fact that the, the, the scientific advisors are referred to as scientific advisors. Well, an awful lot of them, as I've been saying on the show already, are scientific advisors in particular disciplines like Ferguson, uh, who is a, a, um, a sort of an occupational um, and a behavioural scientist. And he's not by any stretch of the imagination an epidemiologist. He's not somebody that knows an awful lot about how viruses spread, but he's a man who seems to know an awful lot about how to control people. Well, actually, um, Professor Ferguson's degree is in physics. Yeah. And he was on um, another radio programme, Desert Island Discs, And he was asked why he didn't continue and become a professor in physics. And his answer was, it was too difficult. (laughs) 
So I think that tells you all you need to know. Yes, exactly right. But this is my chat. my problem with these characters is that they are talked about in these kind of hushed tones as though they are the sole arbiters of truth when it comes to COVID, when they're now more or less openly admitting that not only did they get it wrong, but that their advice was wrong and that they weren't willing to even encounter or encourage uh, different views. But some of us have been given have been giving different advice for at least the past year, yeah. particularly on the harms of lockdowns and that we should have changed our approach. But we were shut down. We, we were not allowed to debate. There are there are very few media outlets, this being one, where you can actually get a fair say mm. and the issues are properly looked into. Well, and if you don't do that, you make the wrong decisions. Well, exactly right. Because echo chambers are all uh, very well if that's what you want to uh, exist in. But you can't run a government in an echo chamber, can you? Well, particularly scientists and doctors should always be up for debate and argument mm. because that's how you move science and medicine forwards. You don't do it by shutting down people and just taking a particular view. If we'd done that, we'd still be treating people with leeches. Yes, I know. Isn't it extraordinary? So, I mean, this is the first of many inquiries, no doubt. I'm not sure whether anything happens as a result of this, but what should happen, do you think, Tony, as a result of this? Well, I don't think anything happens as a result of this because there was another inquiry brought out by MPs a few months ago that concluded unanimously that vaccine passports should in no way be brought in, mm. that it wasn't the British way to do things, they were a medical nonsense, and that report has obviously been completely ignored. And I'm sure this report will be completely ignored. There has to be a proper, independent, probably judge-led inquiry where people can apply to give evidence. So all sides can give evidence. So things like looking at how other countries have done, like Sweden, is not just swept under the carpet. Because the problem is, is that we risk making these same mistakes again, which would be absolutely catastrophic. We need to learn the correct lessons from this. And the other thing that I find curious here, and they haven't, I don't think, addressed it, but as I say, I've not read every single uh, word of the report. The numbers of people who are said to have died of COVID, I think is still a massive question because we're told, first of all, to believe that there were no flu deaths last last winter at all, and all the COVID deaths were all COVID as opposed to possibly something that caused them to die, and they died with COVID as well. You know, so I'm not buying necessarily the, the global figure, if you like, of 128,000. Absolutely, I would agree. COVID, for some people, elderly people and people with other illnesses, and people perhaps with certain genetic predispositions can be a horrible, horrible disease mm. and is extremely dangerous for some people. But there's been no sort of um, allowance for differences across the age group. So, for instance, the, the risk of COVID to an eight-year-old is about a thousand times more than to an eight-year-old. So we shouldn't be treating all those people the same and locking everybody away. No. If, if we... In fact, the, one of the best ways to protect our elderly people before we had the vaccines would have been allowed to allow the uh, COVID to spread amongst the fit and healthy to build up herd immunity that then protects the people that you don't want to catch COVID in the first place. Mm. So I agree. I'm, I'm sure those figures are a large overestimate. If we just look, for instance, at 
so-called COVID admissions in hospital. We know when those are examined fully, only about 25% of those cases that are called COVID admissions are actually patients that went into hospital because they had COVID symptoms. The other 75% are already in to get their hernia repaired or their gallbladder removed, and they just happen to have a positive test. They don't even have any symptoms. Mm. And some are people that caught it in hospital. So they they never give you the full accurate figures. They always want to make it look as bad as they can make it look, I think, just to sort of keep control over people, really. Well, I think the trouble is as well that, you know, um, when they talk about the numbers of people who died, it's still a very, very minute uh, percentage of the population, isn't it? Because, you know, by and large, most people uh, who get COVID recover. Most people who went into hospital with COVID recovered and came out. Most people uh, don't get it at all. Um, You know, it's a very, very minor uh, disease on the the general global scale of death in this country. Um, I don't understand why they're making such a fuss about it. There was there was an opinion poll over a year ago where people were asked what percentage of the UK population they thought had already died. Yes, I remember this. COVID, and the most popular answer was ten percent. Yeah. So people thought six and a half million people had mm. already died of covid right um so that that they've got people in that mindset because there's been no proportion Mm. people forget that there's six hundred thousand people a year die in the united kingdom every year that is normal right of all sorts of conditions and And that's one percent of the population isn't it yes absolutely yeah and the chief medical officer's job in my opinion is to look after the whole of the public health. Mm. That means all diseases, all things that affect people and things that affect people's well-being, not just concentrate exclusively on one disease that is a tiny percentage of the people that died. Mm. And of course, by far, not everyone that's been labelled as a COVID death actually died of COVID because it's anyone that dies within 28 days of a positive COVID test. If you get run over and die, you could still be a COVID death. It is quite remarkable, isn't it, that that there is this sort of mass panic about something which affected so few people. I know, you know, we all know people that got COVID. Uh, Some of us may know people who died from it. Um, But by and large, it did not kill as many people as as the government would have you believe. No, and I I think very early on, nobody really knew so you could understand that degree of panic Mm. nobody knew whether it was going to be one percent of the population that were going to die but very quickly within probably a month or six weeks that became quite obvious that that was the case Mm. we had situations like do you remember the diamond princess yes um cruise ship yeah and that was a very good if you like microcosm Um, Lots of the people on that ship never even caught COVID. Mm. The vast majority that caught COVID were not very ill at all. I think one or two people went to hospital. So they could work out from the figures of that what the true risks of the disease were. But then they really didn't change anything. I think they probably went down a particular route. And then instead of saying, well, actually, the data's changed, Mm. we need to change what we're doing... They just stuck to it and said, oh, no, we've done the right thing all along and we're just going to carry on doing what we say is the right thing. Yeah. 
And now, of course, um, as we enter into another winter, um, there will be those who say, oh, well, we must be careful that the NHS doesn't become overwhelmed again. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm so kind of loath to admit that that will be the case that they say it's it probably within the next four weeks that I'm just fed up to the back teeth of hearing it, really. Well, they, they will say it because it happens every year. Every year that I worked in the NHS, it became overwhelmed in the winter months. Yeah. And that's just the way it is, because if you run the NHS so it has excess beds mm. available during the winter, you've got lots of capacity in the summer that's never going to be used. Right. So you have to somehow change how you do things, perhaps do more of your routine work in the times of the year when they're not under pressure and less of that routine work in the winter when you're under pressure yeah. from things like respiratory illnesses and elderly people coming in with the flu and pneumonia. Yeah. Well, it was only last month, wasn't it, that the NHS announced that, oh, uh, we're going to be able to now put the beds back in that we took out of the hospitals because social distancing is no longer necessary. Um, so they've taken this long to fix that problem. I think always when you bring in restrictions, you see, it's much easier to bring in these restrictions and these cautious approaches when it gets to the point where somebody has to put their name down and say, I'm the person that's going to say, we can know we don't need beds two meters apart now we only need beds one meter apart mm. um i suppose that's a difficult decision for someone to want to put their name to in case something bad happens right. but of course one of the issues with the nhs and why we were so under pressure and why covid spread so easily through the hospitals is that compared to most european countries we have lots and lots of these open wards be they four bedded mm. six bedded eight bedded on the continent, virtually all the hospitals in Germany, they'll all be single rooms. Right. So it's much easier to control infection and stop it spreading. So so the vast majority actually of deaths from COVID in this country were either caught in hospital or they were caught in care homes. Yeah. And if we'd protected those two sections, everybody else could have gone about their business. Mm. As they did, as you say, in other parts of the world. And so... Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of the way that the NHS is now supposedly going to recover, we're told uh, by the uh, Daily Telegraph this morning that uh, the Institute of Fiscal Studies says social care tax must double to tackle the crisis. So as if by magic, they're now saying, oh, you know, money we're going to charge you in April on, the, on your national insurance. It's not going to be enough to fix social care. So we'll have to tax you some more. And all this will do is help the NHS through its uh, short term crisis. I mean, it's always in crisis, isn't it? I mean, the problem is it's it, the money isn't always the solution. And sometimes if huge amounts of money are just thrown at a problem mm. without any proper plan, it can actually make things worse. Yeah. Um, all during the sort of April to October of last year, the NHS bought up most of the capacity in all of the independent hospitals. And they spent a fortune on that capacity. And most of it just went unused. Right. Um, I was actually working in one of the few hospitals where it was well used. But many of those beds that were bought up were just never occupied. Mm. And they could have been dealing with cancer patients, patients for urgent surgery. And it just wasn't organised properly by the NHS. Mm. So the money was all there. All the capacity was bought up. 
and then it wasn't used properly. Yes, and that is the perennial problem, isn't it, with the, the NHS? It's just not managed very well. And I was talking to a doctor the other day about why we still have a problem in GP surgeries, with GPs still not really seeing people face-to-face. Um, and I was told, well, there isn't really anybody in charge. Nobody really knows who's meant to make that decision or instruct doctors um, to get back to work. We've heard Boris Johnson asking for people to get back to work and Sajid Javid as well. We've also seen today um, that GP telephone sessions have apparently been logged as face-to-face appointments for a few weeks to make it look as though they're actually improving the service when they're not. Nothing would surprise me. <laughs> um I don't see any reason why face-to-face appointment shouldn't be back to normal. Mm. Um, all the patients I see, I see face-to-face. Yeah. I don't feel I can do my job properly without seeing the patient face-to-face. If it's just something simple and straightforward, like a repeat prescription, absolutely. If the patient prefers to just do that by a phone call or remotely or online, and that's more convenient, I think that's perfectly acceptable. But I think every patient should have the option of requesting a face-to-face appointment with their GP. And indeed, every patient should have a sort of named GP like we used to have, yeah. which we don't unfortunately have anymore. No. Well, this was one of the stories yesterday, that as many as one doctor to 2,000 patients and sometimes 3,000 in some parts of the country. I mean, you can't possibly get around to seeing all of those. I think the problem is is it's, it's increasingly difficult, I think, to attract young doctors into general practice Mm. the government promised to do that but they haven't really got anywhere and in fact people are retiring early faster than they're getting new gps in at the bottom end and of course they could do a lot probably to try and encourage experienced gps to put off their retirement because those are the people that are most experienced and are going to be able to see the most patients and deal with them more easily. Um, always we have this thing where we think we can just increase medical student numbers, uh, snaffle doctors from overseas, um, but actually a lot of it is down to retention. Mm. The NHS does very little to retain their staff. No, they're always losing them. And many of them are going part-time. Yeah. Many of them are doing sort of you know private work at the same time. But again, I, I've been saying this till I'm blue in the face, you know, for at least 18 months. You know, they need to fix it. In fact, since before the pandemic, I've been banging on about fixing the NHS, but nobody seems to want to. I mean, one of the things for experienced consultants and GPs is that as they get to the end of their career, they can find that they're actually almost paying to stay at work. Mm because of various things about pension contributions. And that's been discussed a lot with the government and it would be a fairly easy thing to solve and would stop lots of people retiring early because that's why they're going because it's not worth them staying and would be much cheaper for the government than trying to increase medical student numbers. Um, My son's a doctor, he's three years qualified now and he's on a training program for orthopedics. But of all his colleagues, he's the only one that's actually bothered to go on a training program. The rest have either already left or they're just doing locum jobs. They don't want to do anything permanent. Mm. And these are people that are just starting out in their career and are already disillusioned right. because of the way that they're treated. They're just not treated well. 
No, they really do need to sort this out and they really do need to start listening to some of the people that like yourself, Dr. Tony Hinton, who come on and talk about this retired surgeon with over 30 years experience. Very, very sensible man. Uh, I can't understand why Sajid Javid finds it so difficult to fix the NHS. What's the problem? Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.